afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. This is Sunday Reading Day, and we're going to be reading about Lizzie Borden, the trial and the after effect. We've already read about the murder, and uh, maybe she did it, maybe she didn't. Still can't tell. But anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so, and we're going to be, we're going to be reading from Rebecca F. Pittman's book on Lizzie Borden. Fascinating book. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. And my hat is crooked again. Look at that. Let me just wait. There we go. Okay. And my hat. <laughs> I have a thing about crooked hats. Maybe it's my head, right? My head's all crooked. Anyway, um, it's nice. We're, we're, we're 45 strong up and down the state of California, Nevada, Washington, Oregon, and Hawaii. That means if you think you might have a paranormal issue, we can get to you fairly quickly. You know, all it takes is an email to me, and you can reach reach me, CaliforniaHaunts.org, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, uh, Facebook. I have a public uh, thing on Facebook. I've got two California Haunt sites. California Haunts Ghostly Events. You can get me all those sites, all those places, including California Haunts Radio on Facebook. So, uh, anyway, we're going to give people about five minutes to get in. Grab your food. Usually I have my little spiel that comes on. and get your popcorn and snacks and Tinkerbell and all that. But uh, not today because it's Sunday. So uh, how's your weekend going? Some of you, you're still in your weekend. Some of you are on vacation. Some are in their weekend. I'm ending my weekend. It was a busy weekend. Very productive weekend, but busy. Very busy. Went out for Chinese food this morning, the, the, earlier today for like a brunchy. It was good. I hadn't had it in a while. And... Uh, been sitting out in my backyard at night. I have a very magical backyard. Comes to life at night. Once the sun goes down, everything comes to life. It's hard to explain. You have to see it to believe it. Lots of work, though. But, uh, yeah, we're starting our new week of radio shows uh, for the week. We're going to be on through Friday, through, through Friday of this week. This is the first of six shows this week that I'm doing. And I want to do a quick reminder. Tuesday's show will be at 9 a.m. Pacific. All right? Because the gentleman lives in Toronto, and so I'm accommodating his time. And it's going to be a really, really cool show. Really cool. Something I usually don't put on that I didn't even expect. So I'm really excited about it. So Tuesday is going to be a 9 a.m. show. Okay? Pacific, which means noon on the, noon on the East Coast. And, two, and, and, and um, 11 o'clock Central Time, blah, blah, blah. Across. It's, it's, it's hard. You know, people like in Australia, it's fun. Because people like in Australia and, and England, it's in, in different countries when i do shows it's it's crazy trying to coordinate these things because australia is already in the next day when i'm coordinating you know it's the day after so i have to coordinate for that day after even though it's the correct day for me people in the uk are usually eight to nine hours ahead so that's easy to coordinate so it, it gets exciting it gets really exciting i'm just saying toronto's just you know up, up above california here and canada and these three hours ahead of me so it gets to be interesting coordinating. Tomorrow we've got a great show too, and that's uh, at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Lee Hample is going to be with us. And Lee Hample actually owns the property that runs along Bray Road. Now we all know about the Beast of Bray Road, right? Well, he's got things going on on this property that looked like it could be the Beast of Bray Road on his property. And he's he's had seen pictures, he's seen footprints. I've even heard, and I don't have, I don't know if I'm going to have a copy of it, but I've even heard a howl that one paranormal team got that actually sounded more human than animal. Because I've been out in the woods a lot. I've been out with coyotes. I've been out with, you know, wolves, all that stuff. And I've, I've never heard a howl like this. To me, it sounds more human. But uh, he's got a lot going on. You know, he, they, 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 he's seen this creature, and he's seen... UFOs about the property, orbs floating around the property, all kinds of stuff. So we're going to be talking to him about that tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. We might run more than an hour. We'll see how things go with him, okay? Because he's got, he's got a lot of evidence over the years and a, lot, and a lot to say, you know, stuff he's seen on his property, especially the footprints. The footprints have been insane, absolutely insane. So, um, yeah, so that's something to look forward to tomorrow. So I'm getting a heads up. But just remember, Tuesday's show is going to be at 9 a.m. Pacific, okay? So coordinate your watches, all right? Set your watches so you can check out Tuesday's show because that's going to be a cool show. It's a really cool show. 
Anyway, again, my name is Charlotte. I'm the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. If you happen to be watching from Facebook and you like what you hear today, please hit that follow button. We're looking for followers. If you're watching from YouTube and you like what you see and hear today, please hit that subscribe button. And that subscribe button, there's a little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat. Click on that and you'll become a subscriber, which means you'll get alerted to all these videos. I have more than 300 videos over at YouTube, and they're all different topics. I mean, there's a little bit of something for everybody. I think I think you'll like it because I just don't do paranormal topics. All right? So do, be sure to do that. If you're watching from Twitch, hit that follow button. Okay? All right. Well, I'm going to power up my ancient tablet, and it is ancient. My Samsung Note 8.0 Galaxy Note. Excuse me, I have allergies, so if I kind of snort, you can hear it. You know, it's one of those things. Very hot here in Sacramento and dusty because I'm always working outside. So when we left Lizzie, Lizzie was in custody, and they were going. They were doing the preliminary trial, and they were trying to see if they had enough evidence to move on with the trial, and that's where we left Lizzie. I think we left her in court even. Um, she's done the deed. They've arrested her. She's obviously in jail, but she's, uh, they're just in the, they're just, they just finished up the, uh, the preliminary trial for her. So let's see what happens next. And I did, I forgot last week was the anniversary of, of when she killed her, her parent, well, her father and stepmother. So it was kind of significant last week. You want to comment in the chat room during the, during the show? You know, while I'm reading, go ahead. Something's going on here because I did not leave it on this page. Okay, oh here we are. But uh, if you feel the need to comment in the chat room, be you know feel free to do that. Always looking for comments, good, bad, ugly. And during the show, if you like what you hear, get a hold of somebody else to, to come listen to. Send the link over to someone else. Say, hey, there's a really cool book being read over here. By this paranormal investigator from Sacramento, right? Yeah, share it with people while, while I'm even doing it. All right, and please subscribe, please follow. That's what we're looking for right now. The more the merrier. Okay, as I said before, we were do we were in the middle of well, we were finishing up the preliminary hearing to see if there was enough evidence to take her to a full hearing. All right, so we're at closing arguments. Here we go. The Herald was incorrect in reporting Mr. Adams would offer the closing summation for Lizzie's defense. Her family's longtime attorney, Andrew Jennings, felt he could add the passion needed during his final attempt at her freedom. I must say I close this case with feelings entirely different from those I have ever experienced at the conclusion of any case, Mr. Jennings said. The man was not merely my client. He was my friend. Let me get a little closer here. I had known him from boyhood days. And if three short weeks ago, one had told me that I should stand here defending his youngest daughter from the charge of murdering him, I should have pronounced it beyond the realm of human credibility. I suggest that even the learned district attorney himself cannot imagine that any person could have committed that crime unless his heart was as black with hatred as hell itself. Lizzie flinched. Her face convulsed as she burst into tears. The woman who had shown no emotion after the discovery of her father's mutilated body nor during the trial, even when told that her father's body had been buried without its head, or when his stomach contents were so graphically recalled, now, before the entire courtroom of startled onlookers, cries. It is interesting that her tears are for the description her attorney has just delivered of the murder of her father. Someone with a heart as black, as, with hatred as hell itself. Her tears are for herself, but hearing herself described in such a way. A sociopath only feels his own pain. And it has never been more evident than, than here, when Lizzie's facade slips away. Mr. Jennings went on to attack the prosecution's failure to show motive or means in the presentation. He stated that it was almost impossible for a person to commit these crimes without being almost covered with blood, from the waist upward in the case of Mr. Borden, and from the feet upward in the case of Mrs. Borden. Here was a girl that had been suspected that they had been suspected for days. 
She was virtually under arrest and so, for the purpose of extracting a confession from her, to support their theory. They brought her here and put her on the rack, a thing they knew they would have no right to do if they placed her under arrest. Day after day, the same questions were repeated to her in the hope to elicit some information that would incriminate her. It is a wonder, Jennings asked. Oh, is it a wonder, Jennings asked? There are conflicting statements. They haven't proved this girl had anything to do with the murder. They can't find any blood on her dress, on her hair, on her shoes. They can't find any motive. They can't find the axes, and so I say, I demand the woman's release. Don't, he begged, put the stigma of guilt upon this woman, reared as she has been and with a past character beyond reproach. Don't let it go out in the world as the decision of just judge, of a just judge that she is probably guilty. There was a pause as Mr. Jennings took his seat. Suddenly a ripple of applause started at the rear of the room, and by the time it made its way forward, it had swelled to a crescendo. Lizzie wept openly, and many in the courtroom joined her. Judge Blaisdell waited, his gavel poised, allowing Attorney Jennings this moment. Then he wrapped his bench, and the court was adjourned for a two-hour recess. Outside, the rain continued, but the crowds would not be denied. On this day, the fate of Lizzie Borden would be announced. She would either exit the door with her sister and return to her home, or, if found probably guilty, she would exit on the arm of Marshal Hilliard and be returned to her cell, her cell in the Taunton jail. When the court resumed, Attorney Knowlton took a deep breath and addressed, the ju- and addressed Judge Blaisdell. He hoped the recess had allowed Mr. Jennings' emotional impact to dim somewhat. The crime of murder touches the deepest sensibilities of feeling, he began. There is the deepest feeling of horror about it, and above all, and the unnaturalness that brings the thrill of horror to every mind. There was not a man, woman, or child in the world of whom we could not have said they would have done it. But it was done. There is no motive for murder, he admitted. There is reason for it, but no motive. Mr. Knowlton went on to address Mr. Jennings' accusation of unfair bias towards Lizzie as the murderer. He stated... She benefited from the deaths. She was on the scene when both deaths occurred, and she was the only person with whom Abby was not in accord. He went on to point out that the police had followed every clue and rumor, expending copious hours of manpower and resources to track down the murderer. And then he pointed an accusatory finger at Lizzie's demeanor. While everybody is dazed, there is but one person who throughout the whole business has not been seen to express emotion. These facts do not point to a woman who expressed any feminine feeling. We are constrained to find that she has been dealing in poisonous things, he concluded, that her story is absurd and that hers and hers alone has been the opportunity for the commission of the crime. Yielding to clamor, he said in reference to the applause afforded Mr. Jennings' summation, is not to be compared to the greatest satisfaction, that of a duty well done. The gallery was silent as Attorney Knowlton sat down. He felt the weight of the situation and the expectations that hovered over the room like a dark cloud. Judge Blaisdell furrowed his forehead and took a moment before delivering his verdict. The long examination is concluded, and there remains but for the magistrate to perform what he believes to be his duty, he said. It would be a pleasure for him, and he would doubtless receive much sympathy if he could say, Lizzie, I judge you probably not guilty. You may go home. But upon the character of the evidence... Parentheses, Emma's head went down and Lizzie steeled herself. Presented through the witnesses who have been so closely and thoroughly examined, there is but one thing to be done, painful as it may be. The judgment of the court is that you are probably guilty and you are ordered, committed, to await the action of the Superior Court. The courtroom sat in shock. Emma's tears could not be held back. Lizzie was ordered to stand as the clerk read the decision of the court ordering her back to t- to Taunton Jail to await the grand jury scheduled to meet on November 7th. She would sit in a jail cell for a little for a little over two months. A matter of timing. There was yet there was yet another underlying factor to the case. It was the matter of who died first, not just as evidence as to the mur- murderer's access to the victims, but as a monetary mo- milestone. The Fall Herald, September 1st, 1892. The examination before Judge Blaisdell has furnished evidence on one important point, and upon this all the experts agree. 
It relates to the question of priority of death and was a matter of the greatest importance to the relatives of, of Mrs. Andrew J. Borden. If she was left a widow for only a moment, she would be entitled to a widow's interest in a large property. It is called a widow's dower. If she was killed before her husband died, it has been pointed out that her heirs would receive nothing. These heirs are Mrs. George Whitehead, Mrs. George Fish of Hartford, their counsel, James W. Okay. Their counsel, sorry about that, James F. Jackson, Esquire, was in consultation with Mr. Jennings this morning. The latter maintains that unless the women died first, the entire theory of the government upon which was based Lizzie Borden's arrest would fall through. Mr. Jackson did not state whether or not he would contest the questions in the court. There are about $5,000 to go to Mrs. Borden's heirs, a property in her name at the time of her death. Is it at all possible Lizzie planned Abby's murder first, knowing it would leave Andrew Borden's estate fully to her and her sister? It has always been assumed Abby died first to opportunity. She was always at home in the mornings, and Andrew was always away conducting business. On this particular morning, it was necessary to kill Abby before she was driven to the meeting at the bank. But did it occur to Lizzie that their order of death would matter in terms of inheritance? Would disavowing Abby's relatives that share in the estate be just another feather in Lizzie's blue bonnet? It's a chilling thought. The Fall River Herald, September 1st, 1892. Lizzie Borden passed a night similar to those she had passed during the trial. Not being able to sleep, she has been taking opiates and in this way has been able to maintain her strength. When she returned to the matron's room after the pronouncement of the judgment, she gave way to a single outbreak of grief at the prospect of continued imprisonment. But her friends assured her that she would be free at the end of that time. And this cheered her. At 12.45 o'clock, a carriage was driven around to the north entrance of the station house, and the crowd that was on the watch rushed to see what was going on. In a few minutes, the prisoner appeared, escorted by Mr. Buck. She wore the blue flannel gown she has worn during the trial. She was handed into the carriage, and Marshal Hilliard, the detective receiver, followed closely after her, the former bearing the necessary papers issued by the court to warrant her committal. The crowd made way, and the carriage was driven rapidly to the station. The party boarded the 129 train excuse me, for Taunton. Lizzie's appearance had not changed materially, except perhaps that care, that care had deepened the facial lines a little. Lizzie's shining new hatchet. On September 8, 1892, Officer Phil Harrington sent a letter to Attorney Knowlton with one of the stranger revelations in the case. Fall River, September 8, 1892. H. M. Knowlton, Esquire. Dear Sir, not knowing Marshall Hilliard's whereabouts, I forward this to you. The F.R. Daily Globe, Fall River Daily Globe, is another story of a letter sent by Lizzie Borden to her friends at Marion. They claim that without any introduction to or comment upon, the following sentence appears. When I come, I will chop all the wood, for I have a new sharper axe. To this, I would not pay much attention, but my informant told me he thought the globe could and would produce the letter. Tomorrow, or in a few days, representative of the FR globe is to call on you and state the facts of the above, possibly Mr. Thurston or Mr. Porter. Yours, etc., Officer Phil Harrington. Four days later, on September 12th, Knowlton sent the following letter to Attorney General Pillsbury. September 12th, 1892. Dear Mr. P- my dear Pillsbury, It is doubtless true that Lizzie Borden wrote to her Marion friends the day before the murder that she should be over Monday and would chop older wood for them for she had been looking at the axes in the cellar and she had found one as sharp as a razor. If this is so, it means insanity. Yours, H.M. Knowlton. Lizzie's love of chopping things appeared again in a letter to Mr. Knowlton from a Mrs. Georgia Walker, who wrote that her friend had told her of Lizzie's time in Swansea. She told me of a family in Swansea whom Lizzie visited in younger days and who tell uh, with bated breath of her one day taking a nest of robins and chopping off their heads because she wanted to have a funeral. From an entirely remote but equally authentic source, I am told of a lady who called at the Borden house one day and was much annoyed by a kitten who kept jumping into her lap. It became so troublesome that Lizzie finally took it from the room and on her return said, That kitten won't trouble you anymore. I've chopped off her head. There were several rumors of Lizzie killing a kitten belonging to Abby that kept coming into the sister's sitting room in the guest chamber and bothering their guests. It was reported even Alfred Johnson, the Swedish farmhand from Swansea, who brought the 
who brought their milk and chopped wood for them, stated it was true. Lizzie had beheaded a cat. As to the letter that Lizzie purportedly sent to her friends at Marion on September 12, 1892, Officer Midley wrote the following report. I visited Miss, Elizabeth, Miss Lizzie Elizabeth Johnson at Myrick's on Saturday. She refused to make known to me the contents of the letter she received from Lizzie Borden on the day of the Borden murder until she had consulted with Mr. Jennings. I talked with her for two hours, but was unable to make her change her mind. She met Mr. Jennings Saturday night. I saw her again today. When she informed me that Mr. Jennings told her she did not she did not tell me the contents of the letter if she did not want to, and she did not want to, I have seen the other girls who were at Marion at the time. None of them will talk. I have made all this known to Mr. Knowlton, and that gentleman instructed me to procure all their names and give them to you in order, that they may be summoned to appear before the grand jury. The names are as follows. Mary L. Holmes, Isabel J. Frazier, Lizzie Johnston, Louise Remington, and Mabel H. Remington. On September 25, 1892, Officer Harrington visited Elizabeth Johnson to ask her about the letter Lizzie sent to her the day before the murders regarding an axe as sharp as a razor. Mrs. Johnston of 24 Ridge Street said, I have said all I think and I should about the letter. Whether or not the girls were called at the grand jury, we don't know. It was a highly secretive meeting and other than one person's testimony presented testimony presented to attorney Knowlton before it began. This time, there were no leaks. The Grand Jury On November 15, 1892, the Grand Jury took up the charges against Lizzie Borden. Attorney Knowlton, hoping beyond hope that he could rid himself of this case, had been in constant contact with Attorney General Pillsbury in the two months between the preliminary hearing and the Grand Jury session. Letters, phone calls, and meetings filled up their calendars. Knowlton was desperate to find a way to avoid a grand jury trial. The question of Lizzie's sanity was even considered. Mr. Pillsbury, in what some saw as a heartless disregard for Knowlton's feelings, told him they were going on with the plans. The finding of Judge Blaisdell made the grand jury a done deal. Attorney Knowlton's faith in the government's case was not as firm as that of his higher-up. The fact that Pillsbury had backed away from the prosecuting table, claiming health issues, was just added weight on Knowlton's shoulders. The grand jury listened to Hosea Knowlton's unenthusiastic case. Pillsbury had written to him, I still favor holding back all that can be prudently held back, especially as I now think that what you have absolutely determined to put in will make the case as strong to the public as if everything went in. As the biggest testament to Knowlton's fervent wish to unburden himself of this albatross, he did something unheard of. Knowlton invited Attorney Jennings to be present Oh, I'm sorry. Knowlton invited Attorney Jennings to present his defense case as well to the grand jury. This was basically unheard of. A grand jury's purpose is to hear all the evidence against the prisoner in order to determine if there is enough war to warrant a superior court trial. Yet, Attorney Knowlton was standing aside for Attorney Jennings to give it his best shot. And Jennings took it. Granted, it was also a way for the prosecution to determine what the defense had in the way of evidence but it had all been brought out previously in the preliminary hearing. It was all for naught. A grand jury, after hearing both sides, adjourned six days later without reaching a decision. As it was November 21st, it may have been a Thanksgiving break for the, judici for the judicial system. It was enough time for a former friend of the Borden sister to come forward with a story she had long held to herself. Alice Russell asked Attorney Knowlton for a meeting. He listened in astonishment, and perhaps with a sinking heart, as she, hang on a second, told him of witnessing Lizzie burning a paint-stained Bedford cord dress the Sunday after the murders. She told him she had told Detective Handsome about it, but nothing was done. Her conscience would not allow her to go on, as she now feared Lizzie was indeed guilty of murdering her parents. Knowlton had no choice. He asked for the grand jury to reconvene. How Lizzie must have viewed her friend's betrayal is not known. That the grand jury had dismantled without a decision had, no doubt, given her great hope as she celebrated Thanksgiving in her jail cell. On December 1st, 1892, the powerful body handed down three indictments for murder. One for the murder of Andrew J. Borden, one for the murder of Abby Borden, and one charging Lizzie with the murder of both of them, just for good measure. The vote was 20 to 1, and had taken only 10 minutes of deliberation. Alice Russell's damage was done. 
Attorney General Pillsbury sent Knowlton a letter of congratulations for his work on this accursed case. It is doubtful Knowlton was celebrating. He was now looking at taking on a monster of a trial with the same mixture of confusing and conflicting evidence. Lizzie's circle of friends in religious and feminist groups had grown, and the papers were serving Knowlton up all a mode to the delight of the public. Attorney Jennings quickly pleaded with Pillsbury that Lizzie is allowed to furnish bail, as she was no threat to flee the country. Pillsbury, in his typical fashion, dismissed Jennings' request, writing to Knowlton, Jennings spent the afternoon with me Friday on the question of bail, but I think I have quieted him. Attorney Jennings then begged the Attorney General for the trial to begin as soon as humanly possible. Despite repeat appeals to both Knowlton and Pillsbury, the government took no steps to schedule a Superior Court trial. It would later be claimed that both men held, held the hope that extended imprisonment of the accused might bring about a physical and mental breakdown and make a trial unnecessary. If the public ever found out, decapitating the board's heads would be but one outcry of barbaric. Chapter 30 The Superior Court Trial The fallout from the findings of the grand jury went beyond Lizzie's incarceration. As always, her life had a trickle-down effect on those within her reach, none more so than her sister Emma. On December 3, 1892, two days after the grand jury indicted Lizzie, Attorney Jennings wrote the following letter. My dear Pillsbury, Mr. Morse wishes to go out west and wants to know if any chance of his being needed this month. As he wishes to go Tuesday, wire or write me so I can get back get, get it Monday. I spoke to Knowlton about it, and he said he had no objection if he would come back. A.J. Jennings. And with that, Emma was left alone in an empty house. New carpet had been put down in two rooms where her parents' bodies had lain. The sitting room had been repapered. She was to spend Christmas with her two servants unless they had family plans elsewhere. 92 Second Street was still a major curiosity in Fall River. While the crowds outside its walls did not number in the hundreds and thousands any longer, the traffic finding its way past the front door was unrelenting. The Borden house was the haunted house every small town claimed, and for Emma, it was a nightmare. The evenings... The evenings were the hardest. With John's departure to Iowa, she faced the hecklers and peeping toms on her own. She feared someone would throw a rock through the window or befoul the side of the house with some type of graffiti. She kept Lizzie's room waiting for her just as she left it. It was the only reminder there had been a family here once. Lizzie, meanwhile, spent her days writing letters and ordering food from the city hotel. With the indictment handed down by the grand jury, <coughs> excuse me, with the indictment handed handed down by the grand jury, had come the removal of two constants in her life, Alice Russell and Elizabeth Johnson. Elizabeth, her friend, that was to vacation with her, and Marion that faithful August, had stood steadfastly by Lizzie's side. She refused to show the letter she received from Lizzie on the day of the murders, and spent long hours with her friend at Taunton Jail. Elizabeth brought treats, magazines, and books, and would talk with Lizzie as long as Matron Wright would allow it. She proclaimed Lizzie's innocence to all who would listen. But this was all the change after Alice Russell's damning evidence of the dress burning hit the papers. Elizabeth suddenly distanced herself from Lizzie. While not speaking out against her one-time friend publicly, she ceased all communication with her, as did Alice Russell. Emma and Lizzie never heard from them again. When Lizzie was later interviewed by Mrs. Mary A. Livermore at the jail, she said sadly, What hurts me most is a malignant feeling that has been shown. Is my character of 30 years count for nothing? The months wore on. Lizzie's few remaining supporters sent candy and other items to keep her cheered as she waited inside the whitewashed walls facing an uncertain future. There was no date set for the trial. If she felt at one time, as she told Matron Reagan in Fall City, in, in, in Fall River, that they do what they want with me, this blatant disregard for her peace of mind would have been torture. She relied on the kindness of her jailkeepers, the rights, who tried to make her Christmas as pleasant as possible. And, as always, Emma was by her side. A letter from Lizzie to her dear friend Annie Lindsay, Mary Ella Brigham's sister, written while incarcerated in the Tom-Tom jail shortly after Christmas, shows Lizzie's de depression over her circumstances. Wednesday, January 18, 1893, 2 p.m. My dear Annie, I meant to have written long ago, but my heart troubles me so much. 
I write very little. I think soon they will take me up the road to the insane asylum. A box of nice candy came to me Tuesday, and no one but my friend Annie sent it. Thank you, dear, very much. You know I cannot for the life of me see my head troubles. Hang on a second. Okay, sorry about that. See how you and the rest of my friends can be so full of hope over the case? To me, I see nothing but the densest shadows. It is fine slaying here. The bells jingle all night long. I must say goodbye for this time. With much love for my loyal friend, L.A.B. The great trial begins. Attorney Andrew Jennings' pleadings for the trial were finally answered, and on the day for the Superior Court to hear the oh yeah, and the day for the Superior Court to hear the case was set for June 6, 1893. Lizzie had now been in jail since the end of the inquest on August 11, 1892. In 1891, legislation was passed mandating a panel of three judges were required to sit on the bench in the event of a capital case. Lizzie Borden's murder trial may have been one of the first cases, if not the first, in Massachusetts to have three judges in residence. The three men selected were Chief Justice Mason, Associate Justice Caleb Blodgett, and Associate Justice Justin Dewey. Attorney Jennings and his famous client were doubtless happy to see fresh faces sitting on the bench. Gone was the judge who had overseen Lizzie's inquest and the preliminary hearing, Judge Blaisdell. If her inquest testimony was kept out, the three new judges might look at her with unbiased eyes. The three men sitting at the bar were fatherly looking in appearance. Judge Mason sported a flowing white beard and sad eyes. He was married and the father of three daughters, who were close in age to Lizzie Borden. Judge Blodgett was described as genial and unaffected in manner. He was a graduate of Dartmouth College and practiced law in Boston. Judge Dewey of Springfield, Massachusetts, was the father of three daughters, all in their 20s. Judge Dewey had been appointed to the Superior Court in 1886 by then-Governor George D. Robinson, the man who was to represent Lizzie Borden in the Superior Court trial the three learned judges were about to hear. And thus, the stage was set. Lizzie's fate would be determined by a 12-man jury, but the presiding magistrate, two with grown daughters, mirroring Lizzie's age and sensibilities, and one put there by Miss Borden's attorney, would play a part in her outcome. The counsels were chosen. Lizzie would be represented by her loyal friend, Attorney Andrew Jennings, Melvin O. Adams, who had represented her ably in the preliminary hearing, and ex-Governor George D. Robinson. The prosecution team included Attorney Jose Knowlton and William H. Moody. Mr. Moody came to the case with an impressive resume. He was District Attorney of Essex County and a graduate of Harvard, where he had known Theodore Roosevelt. Many felt he was the ablest attorney to sit on either side of the courtroom. The location for the trial, despite Attorney Jennings' pleadings that it be held in Taunton, was set in New Bedford, Massachusetts, at the Bristol County Superior Courthouse. The courtroom was on the second floor and accessed by a staircase that opened directly into the room, leaving a large cavity in the courtroom floor. The spectators' seats were wooden benches in the rear, which rose in tiers. The witness box and the jury box were to the left of the judge's position. To accommodate the wealth of journalists that had descended on New Bedford for the trial, a series of long tables with four-legged stools had been placed along the courtroom wall, separated from the jury area by only the court crier's box. Four large, brass, gas-burning chandeliers hung from the courtroom ceiling. Outside the building, the town of New Bedford had taken on a carnival-like atmosphere. Businesses practically ground to a halt. People congregated on sidewalks and in restaurants, and everywhere the sole topic of conversation was the murder case. Thirty extra-temporary lines serving New Bedford for the use of the newspapermen were installed at the Western Union and Postal Telegraph offices. It was obvious this was to be no normal trial. This was a murder trial involving a socially prominent woman accused of double patricide, double parasite, in which the victims were dispatched in the most brutal manner. Even the World's Columbian Expedition, the World's Fair, which had opened in Chicago, was taking a back seat in the headlines on the summer of 1893. Hear ye, hear ye. Robert Sullivan, in his book, Goodbye Lizzie Borden, published by Penguin Books in 1974, Describe the opening day. Picture this singular scene on the first Monday of June, in June 1893. The clerk and the bailiff standing so stiffly that they seemed part of the court fittings. The spectator seats crowded to full capacity 
the press table so swarmed that some of the correspondents shared the tiny stools or stood. They unseasonably toward whether it was amplified by the body heat generated by the pressing crowd, which fluttered palm leaf and folding fans to provide a semblance of coolness. At 11.25 a.m., the detention room door opened, and Lizzie Borden was led to and placed at the bar for trial. At 11.28, with a resounding crash of the bailiff's staff, the court entered and took its place upon the bench. Chief Justice Mason in the center, flanked by Judge Blodgett to his right, and Justice Dewey to the left. The court crier from his box at the side of the courtroom gave the cry, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, all those having anything to do before the Honorable before the honorable, the justices of the Superior Court gather round, give your attention, and you shall be heard. God save the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Be seated. The trial was favored by one particular journalist with star power. Joseph Howard was probably the first syndicated news columnist of the nation. Known for his flamboyant style and overusage of adjectives dripping with detail, he was a favorite of the reading public in 1893. He represented the Boston Globe, the New York Recorder, and Pulitzer's New York World. His column stood out in each paper by his bold black, by his bold black signature. 145 prospective jurors crammed the courtroom on the first day of the trial. The gawkers were left outside. A serious business of selecting 12 men to sit the panel was chosen. After four hours of mind-numbing examination, in the end, they were George Potter, William F. Dean, John Wilbur, Frederick C. Wilbur, Lemuel K. Wilbur, William Westcott, Louis B. Hodges, Augustus Swift, Frank Cole, John C. Finn, Charles I. Richards, and Alan H. Wardell. Joseph Howard kicked off the sensationalism of the trial of the century in grand style. Writing from the courtroom on June 5th, the opening day of the trial, he wrote, after Sheriff Wright had drawn up in real, in real New Bedford State with the judges, a modest little carryall stopped at the door, from which alighted the heroine of the day. Heretofore, from the morning of the murder until her last appearance, Miss Borden has worn a blue serge dress. Her costume today was becoming, and a fashionable cut. Her hat was a model for theatergoers, black belt of lace, ornamented with blue rosettes, a tiny blue feather. Her frock was a black merino, fastened at the neck with a modest brooch. She wore dark, undressed kid gloves and very neatly fitting shoes. Her self-possession was remarkable, and she ascended the long flight of stairs leading to the courtroom quickly, briskly in fact, and took her place in what is called the dock, which in reality is nothing but a space between two rails where two chairs are placed, one of which is occupied by the deputy sheriff, the other by herself. Life here has a face. Her dark brown hair was modestly coiled behind. Her full forehead was very pale. Her wide apart eyes had an unpleasant stare. Her cheeks, which are over full, hang down below the line of the chin, making a pronounced mark on either side of the face, carrying the line from the lower part of her ear, a long distance down to the point of an obstinate and stubborn chin. Parentheses, as an interesting aside, photos of the sisters taken at different times show identical pansy pins. Did Emma learn the, loan the pin to Lizzie to wear, perhaps for luck during the trial, or vice versa? Was it a gift to the sisters, matching, matching pins perhaps from Andrew? Or was it merely a popular accessory in 1893? The photo of Emma was found by Stephanie Corey with LizzieDrewBorden.com and the Swansea Museum of Borden Family Photos. Emma and Lizzie have the same cat-like eyes. Joseph Howard went on to describe the scene that day in the courtroom in prosaic fashion. Outside in a neighboring field was a most demonstrative cow, whose mooing is almost continuous, frequently interrupting the learned judge, often drowning the responses of mild-mannered witnesses, and causing, as far as the eye could see, the one and only smile that changed the impassiveness of the boarding countenance from morning until night. Lizzie was alone that day. Emma and her friends were not allowed inside the courtroom during the jury selection, nor any other time, if they were to be called as witness. The face of her dear friend, Sheriff Wright, who had been so kind to her at the Taunton Jail, must have cheered her, while others found his manner in riding roughshod over the gallery a bit pompous and overbearing. The day ended at six o'clock. 
Attorney Knowlton would begin the trial in earnest the following morning at 9 o'clock, when he would present his opening arguments. The prosecution opens. Attorney Hosea Knowlton could have actually been labeled the reluctant counsel. His attitude toward his role was summed up in the letter to Attorney General Pillsbury shortly before the trial upon hearing Pillsbury would not be joining the fray due to health concerns. Honorable A.E. Pillsbury, Attorney General, my dear sir, I have thought more about the Lizzie Borden case since I talked with you, and think perhaps that it may be well to write you, as I shall not be able to meet you probably until Thursday, possibly Wednesday afternoon. Personally, I would like very much to get rid of the trial of the case, and feel that my feelings in that direction may have influenced my better judgment. I feel this all the more upon you, upon your not unexpected announcement that the burden of the trial would come upon me. Yours truly, Hosea Knowlton. And so, District Attorney Moody took the helm for the prosecution and opened the case, much to the surprise of some. At 39 years of age, he was the youngest of the professional participants at the trial, and he was about to try, he was about to try his first murder case. That being said, many called his opening remarks a masterpiece. The prosecution's approach to proof of guilt was threefold. One, Lizzie Borden was predisposed to and had predetermined murder, Andrew J. Borden and Abby Borden. Two, Lizzie Borden did in fact murder Abby Dufresne Borden and Andrew J. Borden in that order, and with, substantial inter- and with a substantial interval of time between the two killings. Three, that by her statements and by her actions after the murders, excuse me, and each of them, Lizzie Borden, by word and act, placed herself in a position which was entirely inconsistent with innocence. In fact, in her words and by her deeds after the murders, and each of them, Lizzie Borden, had displayed a consciousness of guilt of the murders to the point that she revealed herself to be guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Moody told the jury that the witnesses would support one or more of the three basic premises of guilt. He stated Lizzie's motive was her hatred of Abby and her general fear of loss of inheritance. Her state of mind at the time of the murders would be proven by her actions and words prior to the tragedy. Moody declared the prosecution's witnesses would show Lizzie Borden had the strength and the means available to commit the crimes. And more importantly, she had the exclusive opportunity to carry out the murders. Finally, Mr. Moody told the jury that witnesses would testify as to Lizzie Borden's lies to prevent the detection of the first murder. Her lies and inconsistent statements as to her own whereabouts, her lies and inconsistent statements as to her discovery of her father's corpse, and as to the inevitability of her knowledge of the first murder, and very significantly, witnesses would testify as to the unusual acts and statements in the several days following the murders and before her arrest. Although the temperature outside the courtroom on that June was June morning was 93 degrees by noon and even hotter inside the small room, the court sat spellbound by Moody's declaration of proof against the woman who sat, almost disinterested, in a seat only a few feet from him. Lizzie's detachment soon dissolved as Mr. Moody inadvertently caused a major sensation during his opening. At one point, the attorney was holding up Lizzie's blue dress that was to be offered in evidence. It was the dark blue bengaline she handed over to Marshall Hilliard. He tossed it carelessly aside as he moved on in his speech. However, as he did so, the dress hit a tissue-covered handbag that rested on the prosecution table. The tissue fell away, exposing to plain view the hideous, sightless eyes of the fleshless skulls of the two victims. Lizzie at first covered her eyes with her fan. Then her head fell against the police matron seated next to her in dead faint. Reverend Jubb, who was seated before her, separated only by the railing, turned around to assist her. Attorney Jennings ran for water and smelling salts, while Deputy Sheriff Kirby, who sat beside her, fanned her. After several minutes, Lizzie sat up, her face as pale as marble. A fanciful illustration titled, Lizzie Faints Away, using a story appearing in the Police Gazette, the man's magazine of the 1890s. Attorney General Moody ended his opening with these words. We shall ask you to say, if you, if say you can, whether any of other reasonable hypotheses 
except that of guilt of this prisoner can account for the sad occurrences which happened upon the morning of August 4th. The first witness called was Thomas Kiernan, the Fall River engineer who did the drawings of the house and grounds to facilitate trial testimony. His words were ones of measurements, not only of the Bourne residents, but of the, cl of the closest neighbors to them. After Mr. Kiernan's testimony, Mr. Knowlton stood and asked that the jury now be taken to Fall River to view the house and grounds. Lizzie declined the offer to attend the viewing of her home. Mr. Jennings and Mr. Moody accompanied the panel of 12 men to 92 Second Street. As usual, the crowds followed. Day 3 of the Trial, June 7th As the third day of the trial began, it was evident that spe spectators within and without the courtroom were ready for the real drama to begin. They had listened to measurements and the boring preliminaries. Now they wanted to hear from the principal people involved in the murders of Abby and Andrew Gordon. They were surprised when, instead, Mr. Knowlton recalled the engineer, Thomas Kiernan, to the stand. Many became restless. In a curious move, Attorney Knowlton asked the engineer if he had conducted an experiment with the hall closet next to the front door of the Borden Home Interior. He said he had. He was asked to state what he had done. Mr. Kiernan said he had placed a man inside the closet, and with the door ajar, the witness, Kiernan, had failed to see the man inside while standing eight, eight or ten feet away from the closet and looking directly into it. If Mr. Jennings and Governor Robinson exchanged looks of surprise at the testimony, it was no wonder. This was the prosecution's witness, yet here he was, providing proof for the defense that an intruder could have hidden and could have hidden in the house the day of the murders. Further, no evidence had been given yet in the trial, other than some floor plans and measurements, nothing that would warrant this type of testimony. If Knowlton was tipping his hand that his heart was not in this trial, he was off to a great start. James Walsh. The photographer, James Walsh, was next. He testified to being called to take photos of both Bordens, including those of their partial autopsies. He arrived around 3 in the afternoon of the murders and left close to 5.30. Charles Carroll took the interior and exterior photos of the house and grounds just prior to the start of the trial, and they were presented to the jury. Finally, one of the star witnesses took the stand. There was a shift in the gallery as they perched on the edge of their seats. John Rinnicum Morris, the evasive, mysterious uncle from the West, walked in in his rumpled suit to take the stand. The formalities were gone into. Mr. Morris stated he was now 69 years old, a brother to the late Sarah Morris, Lizzie's biological mother. He recited the same details he had in the preliminary hearing as to the arriving at the Bordens the day before the murders on the 12.35 from New Bedford. He spoke of the breakfast Thursday morning, including that there were bananas on the table. He said he left by the side door around 8.45, saw Bridget cleaning in the kitchen as he went, and was asked by Andrew to come back for dinner. His trip to the post office detailed walk to the Way Bossett Street, to Way Bossett Street and return to Andrews were laid out. He stuck to a story that he did not notice any crowds around the boarding house when he got, close to, got back close to noon. He went into the yard, ate a pear, and saw a man at the side door who told him for the first time Andrew was dead. He went in immediately where he viewed both bodies. I first saw Lizzie, and then I passed in the sitting room and saw Mr. Borden's body, Morris testified. Then I went partway up the stairs, far enough to see Mrs. Borden's body lying on the floor with blood on her face. Lizzie was sitting in the dining room on the lounge. Mrs. Churchill and Miss Russell were with her, but then they went to the sitting room where Mr. Borden's body was lying on the sofa. There were two or three police officers in the house, and I saw blood spots leading from the sitting room into the dining room and above Mr. Borden's head. I think Emma washed those off Sunday. John Morris's testimony was oddly without drama, compared to the confrontational atmosphere that prevailed during the preliminary hearing. His answers were taciturn and by, and by rote. The only curious thing during this time, during his time on the stand, was that neither Robinson nor Knowlton asked him a single question as to whether he had any conversation with Lizzie that day after discovering the murders. It is also the first time we hear Mrs. Churchill and Alice Russell went into the sitting room where Andrew lay. Perhaps the sheet covering him gave them some comfort. The next five witnesses were called to testify to Andrew's whereabouts the morning of his murder, between 9.30 and 10.30 a.m. Excuse me, it's hot. Their testimony has been presented in the book under Andrew's timeline that morning. The witnesses were, in order, Abraham Seahart, John T. Burrill, Everett M. Cook, 
Jono. Whoa, just one. Hang on a second. Give me a second. Thank you. Jonathan Clegg, Joseph Shortsleeves, and James Mather. While their collective testimony did little to shed light on the murders, it did showcase one important point. The three banking institutions and the two stores owned by Mr. Borden that he visited that morning were all located close together in the business district near City Hall, which was only 900 feet from number, from number 92 2nd Street, an easy five-minute walk home. Bridget Sullivan. No other witnesses. Hang on, guys. i got to take care of something. Just bear with me. I gotta have enough of this. Just give me a second, okay? I gotta block somebody in the chat room. Okay. Just to let you know, I've I've got a, a troll in the chat room, so I just blocked him, okay? So let me make sure I block this guy. Just give me a second. We'll get back to work. I'm gonna keep blocking him down the line here. So give me a minute. Okay, I got rid of everything. Sorry about that for the people in the chat room. I apologize. I don't have a, I don't have a producer here, so it's just me. So I'm just reading along, and then you know when I see these things come up, I'm just gonna block, block, block. Bridget Sullivan. And for those that are just coming in, if you like what you hear, please share this. Uh, if you're watching from Facebook, please follow. Same thing with uh, Twitch. And if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Okay, Bridget Sullivan is the maid. No other witnesses held as much interest to the court as a young Irish domestic who had witnessed so much the day of the murders. According to the New York Times, a buzz of excitement went around the room at 12.30 when Mr. Moody called Bridget Sullivan. She was dressed in a maroon-colored fashionably made dress and wore a large hat with a large feather and black kid gloves. She leaned on the left side against the rail, looked straight ahead, and spoke so low that he had to tell her to speak louder. The prisoner changed the posture, so as to see the witness plainly, and watched her steadily with large eyes wide open. Bridget only spoke for 30 minutes before a recess was called at 1 o'clock. She was back on the stand at 2.15 and testified until 4.55 that day, until the court adjourned until the following morning. Bridget's testimony was, once again, clear, forthright, and unchanged. There was no mention of washing windows in the attic, looking out her bedroom window, or seeing Lizzie come down the back stairs of the kitchen, the New York Times. Then I went up to my room and lay down. The first notice I took of any time was when I heard the city hall clock strike 11. I think I had been there three or four minutes. I don't think I went to sleep. Heard no noise. I'm able to hear the screen door if it's closed by a, care, by a careless person. The next thing I heard was when Lizzie called me to come down, as her father was dead. That was at least 15 minutes after. Bridget's testimony recaptured testimonies from before. She was clearly polished by now, knew what to say, and what not to say. She rattled, she rattled off the details most people could recite by heart. She was called Maggie by the girls, had been with the Bordens two years and seven months at the time of the murders, had no chores on the second floor of the house. Lizzie was in charge of sweeping and dusting the parlor in the summer months. Bridget's chores were washing, ironing, cooking, and a little scrubbing. She was reciting the events of the morning of the murders and had gotten to Mr. Borden throwing his slops on the grass when she was interrupted. Mrs. Caroline Kelly needed to be called at that time as she had a pressing engagement. Bridget stopped. Bridget stepped down. Mrs. Caroline Kelly. Mrs. Kelly's testimony was brief. She lived next door to the Bordens and had a dentist appointment the morning of the murder. As she hurried down 2nd Street to her appointment, she saw Andrew Borden coming around the side of his house to the front door. He was carrying a small white parcel, which she described in detail as to his measurements. When I saw him at the front door, she said, I was opposite his front gate, near enough to touch him, but his back was turned toward me. He was stooping down. This was exactly 28 minutes to 11. Bridget Sullivan again recalled, Bridget continues to go over the events of Thursday, August 4th. There is no change in her testimony since the preliminary hearing. She is now careful to say she saw Lizzie come into the sitting room from the front entry, five minutes after hearing her laugh at the top of the stairs. There are no surprises in her testimony. It was not until Mr. Moody asked her what dress Lizzie was wearing that day that the fireworks began. Mr. Moody, what was the usual dress that this Lizzie Borden wore mornings? Will you describe it? Mr. Robinson. Wait a minute, we object to that. Moody, not as having any tendency to show what she had on that morning. Robinson, I object. 
moody. I don't care to press it against objection. Bridget. While she wore a... Robinson and Mr. Moody. Wait a moment. Moody, I will call your attention, not asking you when it was worn or what part of the time it was worn, to a cotton or calico dress with light blue groundwork and a little figure. Does that bring does that bring to your mind the dress I'm referring to? Bridget, no, sir. It was not a calico dress she was in the habit of wearing. Moody, I did not ask about the habit, but... Robinson, that should be stricken out. Moody, certainly. James Mason, let it be stricken out. Judge Mason, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. Let it be stricken out. Moody, do you remember a dress of such a color? Bridget, yes, sir. Moody, will you describe that dress that I have referred to as well as you can? Bridget, it was a blue dress with a sprig on it. Moody, what was the color of the blue? What was the shade of the blue? Bridget, light blue. Moody, and what was the color of what you call the sprig on it? Bridget, it was darker blue, I think, than what the under part was. Moody, did it have any light spots or light figures on it? Robinson, this is very leading now. Bridget, I don't remember. Moody, when did this? When, when did she procure that dress? Bridget, last spring, I guess. Moody, was it made at the house or made somewhere else? Bridget, I think it was made at the house. Generally, the same dressmaker has been there since I've been in the house. Okay, generally, sorry. Moody, let me ask you in this in this connection if you are able to tell us what dress she had on in the morning. Bridget, no, sir, I couldn't tell what dress the girl had on. Parentheses, Bridget may or may not have noticed Lizzie's dress on the morning of the murders. She was not feeling well and barely turned towards Lizzie to ask her what she wanted for breakfast before bolting off the screen door to throw up. When Bridget returned to the kitchen, Lizzie was gone. The next time she saw Lizzie, Bridget was on the outside of the screen door and heading for the barn. Finally, she saw Lizzie as she raced down the stairs when Lizzie called her, saying Mr. Borden had been killed. She was told to hurry away for Dr. Bowen. The only time Bridget really had a chance to notice Lizzie's dress was during the 45 minutes between being sent for Bowen and Miss Russell, and Lizzie going up to her room to change into, into the pink wrapper. But with all that that was going on, with the people and police coming, she may not have noticed. Or if she did, she kept quiet rather than, than see Lizzie hang. One word from her saying Lizzie had changed from the Bedford Court that morning into something else would be all would be all it would take for a noose to be fashioned. It is evident in the previous testimony when Bridget says it was not a calico dress she, she was in the habit of wearing, that she was referring to the rib cord dress, one that was light blue with a darker sprig, exactly like the one Alice Russell described as the bid for cord Lizzie burned that Sunday. Bridget gave the following damaging evidence based on what she saw and heard that day. The bell had not rung when Mrs. Borden when Mr. Borden came home that morning at 10.40. He said nothing as he came in about forgetting his key. The front door was triple locked. She heard Lizzie laugh at the top of the stairs in the vicinity where Mrs. Borden lay dead. She did not see Lizzie in the kitchen reading the magazine, as Lizzie testified she was. Lizzie tried to entice her out of the house twice that morning, including telling her of a sale at Sargent's, something Lizzie had never done before. She had not seen Lizzie cry, and most damaging of all, Bridget claimed the only person she heard from about the note was Lizzie, not Abby. She also said she had seen no one come to the door to deliver a note. Parentheses, Bridget was out back, throwing up, when the messenger came, so she would not have known someone came to the door. End of parentheses. Mr. Robinson, on cross-examination, did his best to get Bridget to say the Borden family was a pleasant place to be, where everyone was civil to each other, ate meals together, and even planned Christmas together. Bridget admitted to not hearing quarrels, but would not budge that the girls often ate their meals alone. She also denied ever saying they planned Christmas together. He pushed to say Lizzie was sick on Wednesday as well. Bridget would only admit that Lizzie complained about being sick. She did say Lizzie was, was at old meals Wednesday, including being there for dinner, lunch, which is lunch, which was unusual. Robinson next pressed Bridget on the layout of the house, trying to make it look as if she was in the back part of the kitchen doing dishes in the sink room, instead of in the kitchen proper, intimating that she may not have seen Lizzie reading at the kitchen table. Bridget didn't bite. Next, he walked through the, wash, the washing of the outside windows and heard talking with, Kelly, with the Kelly girl. His point was that someone could have come into the side door on the north, while Bridget was dabbing and washing windows on the south side of the house. Bridget admitted someone could have. 
He also established that Bridget had made at least six or seven trips to the barn for water and that the windows on the north side of the house were too high up to see inside the house. She agreed. His final victory in the intruder theory was to elicit from her that the door to the parlor had been closed all morning and that she had no business in the front entry until she let Mr. Morton in. His point. Someone could have been hiding inside the parlor the entire morning, between the time Abby was killed and Andrew was murdered. Bridget did not mention she had testified at the inquest that she went through the parlor before opening the front door, presumably to peek out the window to see who was fumbling with the lock. Bridget admitted to seeing no blood anywhere on Lizzie that morning, or that her hair was excuse me, or that her hair was disarranged in any way. Robinson did score a major point when he got Bridget to admit that on Wednesday she saw Lizzie in the bed for cord when she came down to breakfast and when she was there for the new meal. His point was, Eli Benz and his clerks described Lizzie as coming into the drugstore between 10 and 11.30 that morning, wearing a dark dress, not a light blue wrapper. Unless Lizzie changed her dress twice that morning and made it look as though Lizzie had never left the house. Robinson asked where Bridget had lived since, living, since leaving Fall River after the inquest. She said she had been living in New Bedford, employed at the jailkeeper's house as a cook. Marshall Hilliard and Detective Seaver had put up her security. Moody asked Bridget if Mrs. Borden was in the habit of telling the servant when she was going to leave the house. Robinson objected to it, and Bridget's ordeal was over. She gratefully stepped down, and the court adjourned for the day. Bridget's employment at the New Bedford Jailkeeper's home was a source of contention for the lady. She told Officer Harrington on October 1, 1892, Yes, I left New Bedford for good. I did not like the way the paper spoke of me, and I was in the New Bedford jail and I got a postal card from the court requesting me to call for my witness fees, and that was addressed to the New Bedford jail. I did not like this, so I thought I would show them I would not stay any longer. I think I will try to get a place here, Fall River, through, through, through Mrs. Kenny's agency. If not, I may go to Newport, Rhode Island, and work in the hotel where I was employed before. I have relatives in South Bethlehem, and as I worked there before, I may go again. In a joking manner, she said, she may go back to Ireland. She promised wherever she would go, she would let me know, although Mrs. Harrington of Division... Okay, let me know through Mrs. Harrington of Division Street. She saw nobody about the case since the trial, but several called at New Bedford, and she would not see them. Neither would she in the future, for she was tired of the whole thing. I think, she said, it will be hard for me to get a place, for no one wants to hire a person for one month. I think the district attorney should give me something for my time. The papers and the postal card made me feel badly. But aside from them, I got tired over there. I had nothing to do but look at the walls of the prison, and I found seven gray hairs in my head. I would rather have a place where I would have something to do. Bridget was not imprisoned at the jail. She was a cook in the jailkeeper's house, but the mail was sent to the jail's address. Her reference to not finding work for one month is that she was to stay in the area until the grand jury in November opened. Bridget stated that she had not seen Miss Lizzie or Miss Emma since leaving the Borden house on Monday, August 8, 1892, as she was in the government's witness, as she was the government's witness and may have been due to the restriction on her visiting the sisters. Or she may have cut them off. We do see a stronger Bridget throughout her words to Officer Harrington. She was more than any witness evolved throughout the months following the crime. Okay, guys, I'm going to cut off there at Chapter 31. Um, I hope you enjoyed hearing it. There we go. And I want to thank you guys for coming. Uh, it's an interesting book to read. In some places, it's a, hard, it's a difficult book to read because of all the testimony and the way it goes back and forth. So, And uh, there's a couple other things, too, that's kind of funny. But uh, um, like a couple times, I actually read the photo captions because the photo captions, when I enlarge them to read them in a uh, book in, in the uh, in the Kindle, they all kind of merge into the main text, so then I'll catch myself reading the photo captions. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming this week. Uh, next week we will continue with the story, and that'll be the same time, 6.30 p.m. on next Sunday night, next Sunday evening. And again, tomorrow we're going to have Lee Hample on, The Beast of Bray Road, which he may, well, I'm not saying he has it, I'm just saying he lives, let's just, I'm just going to recap here, because he lives adjacent to, the, to Bray Road, and he sees this, this this weird creature on his property. Is it the beast? We'll have to talk to him to see. 
anyway, thank you guys for coming tonight. If um, if you're watching from Facebook and you enjoyed it, please be sure to follow. If you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to subscribe. That little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner with the magnifying glass and the um, Sherlock Holmes head on. If you're watching from Twitch, please feel free to follow. I appreciate it. And if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. Um, also, YouTube shows us no love, so, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to find us sometimes. So the best way to find us is to go to CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, and you can pick up all our videos there, and they'll take you over to the YouTube site. Anyway, uh, if you see that thing, uh, the, ticker, the, the ticker down at the bottom, that's because California Haunts takes no money to investigate. We simply go out and help people and educate. But uh, the only issue is, since I own it, all the expenses come out of my pocket, like the internet here, the computers, the mics, you know, all that stuff, plus the paranormal equipment that we use during investigations and any rooms that we might have to take when we're out, you know, in, in different cities doing investigations. If you could help me out a little bit, that would be great. Uh, you can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts, or you can do that at Venmo and then just type in California Haunts. Any little bit helps, believe me. You know, because I have to make expenses just like everybody else. This is all I do. I'm retired, and uh, th th this is my gig. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming again tonight, and uh, I will see you tomorrow. Remember, 6.30 p.m., we're going to have Lee Hample on to talk about the Beast of Ray Road. At least we hope it's the Beast of Ray Road. So I will see you tomorrow. Have a good night. <laughs>